So we are, uh, we're getting into the weeds this week of Revelation. This is actually our 12th week now looking at this book. It's our third week after our hiatus. And I would say that the passage we're about to look at is the wildest so far. Uh, this is filled with vivid, frightening imagery, confusing imagery. It is not easy to interpret. And I'm just going to admit it right now. There are going to be questions I can't answer about this. Uh, so brace yourself. But before we get into it, let me remind us one more time. I know I've, I've said this a lot in the series so far, so some of you are probably getting tired of hearing this, but it's so important to remind ourselves of these three interpretive principles with Revelation. Number one, Revelation is a highly symbolic book. Okay, It reveals truth, and it reveals truth through symbols. Second thing we have to remember, it's really hard to interpret, and so we have to be humble. If I say something that you disagree with in my interpretation, please refrain from getting too upset about it and admit, have the humility to admit that you might be wrong about your interpretation too. People have wrestled with this text for a long time. And then third interpretive principle, we have to be careful not to miss the forest for the trees. Uh, Revelation is a very artistic book. Uh, it's meant to affect you kind of the way that a piece of art would, that a, that a painting would. And do you study a painting with a microscope? No. And if you did, you would miss out on the full effect that the painting is supposed to have on your soul, right? So when we read Revelation, we, we don't want to get so fixated on the details that we can't appreciate the big picture of what it's revealing to us. Now, just to remind us of where we are, two weeks ago, Jesus, represented by a slain lamb, opened up six seals on a scroll, and that scroll represents the unfolding of God's plan for history. And as those six seals opened, there were a lot of scary things that happened, right? War, disease, death, famine, and eventually complete turmoil throughout the earth. And the people asked a question as they were surrounded by this turmoil. Who can stand? Who can stand? And last week, we looked at a vision that answered that question. Who can stand? And the people who can stand when the world goes into complete turmoil are the people whose robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, those who have faith in Jesus, those who are trusting in him for forgiveness of sin and for victory over the forces of evil. Those are the ones who can stand. Those who are the ones who can have hope when the entire world has gone to pieces and there's nothing left to trust in except for God himself. So that's where we left off. Uh, if you want to follow along in your own Bible, you can open up to Revelation chapter 8. This is a long passage that we have this morning, and there's a lot to take in. So I'm not going to read the entire thing at once. We're going to take it piece by piece and talk about it as we go through it. But before we get into it, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we read this difficult passage, uh, that it would affect us the way that you want it to affect us, Lord. I pray that in these uh, vivid images, these visions, Lord, that you would communicate truth to us, truth about who you are, truth about who we are, um, 
And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us in our thinking and in our response. We open ourselves up to hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel, who had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. All right, so last week I said, if you have been eager to find out what happens when the seventh seal is opened, you have to wait another week, right? Because last week we were looking at, there was a break between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. So now we finally got into the seventh seal. And what happens when it, when it opens? Silence. Probably not what we expected. Silence. Up until this point, when heaven has been described, it's been described as a pretty noisy place, right? Because around God's throne, there are these 24 elders, these living creatures. There was the great multitude in the last chapter, and they're always making noise. They're always praising God, saying things like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But the seventh seal opens, and everybody falls silent. Why? Well, no one knows for certain, but as I was reflecting on this, I was reminded of something that happened a couple weeks ago. A few of us gathered here at the church to watch a documentary called Emmanuel, which is about the uh, church shooting that happened in 2015 in Charleston, South Carolina. And I would really recommend that documentary, very powerful documentary, touches on themes of uh, violence and racism and, of course, our faith and forgiveness. And when it ended and the credits started to roll, I was supposed to initiate a discussion. And I felt so awkward as I turned on the lights and I started to try and engage everybody because there was this sense that what we had witnessed was so profound that the only appropriate response, at least for a while, was nothing, right? When we experience something profound, something holy, it feels disrespectful to just start talking. And when the seventh seal opens, all of heaven knows that this is a holy moment, and silence is the appropriate response. Sometimes silence is the appropriate response. And I think there's a principle here for our prayer lives that's important for us to hear. Sometimes it's good just to be still and mindful of the presence of God. Silence can be a form of prayer. You know, sometimes it's not until we take the time to be silent and still before God that we really recognize or sense his presence with us. He's always there, but sometimes it's not until we're just still and silent that we feel the reality of his presence. So I encourage us in our prayer lives, don't just practice talking to God, practice also being silent before God. But that's not the only thing this passage has to say about prayer. 
Uh, it also describes an angel holding a censer. Now, for those of us who don't have a liturgical church background at all, we might not know what a censer is. Uh, this is what a censer looks like. It's this thing that uh, incense is burned in, and then the smoke comes out the top. And if you go to a more liturgical church, uh, usually the priest will hold that and swing it during worship. Um, and it uh, makes everything smell special. Uh, <laughs> so... What happens, right, is the angel has this censer, and it says that the smoke that rises up from this incense is the prayers of the saints, right? And so the prayers of the saints rise to God, and then the angel takes fire from the altar and hurls it down to earth. Now, what does this represent? What is this, this suggesting? What this is telling us is that there is a connection between our prayers and God's justice coming on earth. Now, <laughs> you might look at this picture and think, man, I don't know if I should be praying if that's what it's going to result in, right? Fire being thrown down on earth. But it's important to recognize the fire represents justice coming to earth. It represents things being made right with the world, finally. And what we need to recognize is that God has set things up in such a way that our prayers really do matter in helping to bring about justice on earth. Our prayers play a critical role in things being made right with the world. It's a mystery exactly how that all works, but this is telling us that it's part of the way that God has set up the world. <clears throat> now, we're told that the seven angels are given seven trumpets. And in the next passage that we're about to read, these angels are going to start blasting these trumpets. And with each trumpet blast, uh, another judgment is going to come upon the earth. So if you thought once we got to the seventh seal, oh, phew, we're going to be done you know, with all this judgment. Well, surprise, there's a whole, there's a whole fresh set of horrors now uh, before us. And not to get too ahead of ourselves, but when the, seventh, when the seventh trumpet gets blasted, there's going to be a whole new set of seven, seven bowls of wrath that get poured out on the earth. So there's still a lot more judgment to come. And <clears throat> so I've been reading about these three sets of seven, the seven uh, seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. And what I have come to, to discover is that interpreters disagree a lot about how to understand the relationship between these three sets of seven. Uh, some interpreters understand them very chronologically. And on the face of it, that seems to make sense, right? Because they're laid out in this sequence in the scriptures. One seems to follow the other, the seals, and then the seventh seal is opened, which releases the seventh trumpets, and then the seventh trumpet is blown, and that releases the seven bulls. So that's the chronological view, that these are reflecting a historical sequence that will, will take place or is taking place. But then there's another view, which is that they're concurrent. All three sets of seven judgments are happening at the same time, and these are uh, descriptions of judgment from different perspectives. And then there's even a, another uh, way of understanding it, which is called the overlap method. I found one guy who argues that when the sixth seal opens, that's actually the seven bowls. 
And I'm not going to go into detail about why he thinks that. But the point I'm just trying to make is there's a lot of disagreement about the relationship between these three things. And to confuse you even further, uh, there's not only disagreement over the order of these sets of judgments, there's also disagreement over when in history they're happening. So some people think, and this is very common, uh, that all these judgments are to come, that they're going to happen in the future. Uh, some people think that all or most of these judgments took place in the past. Uh, some people think that these judgments have been occurring over the course of human history, that they are occurring now and they will continue to occur until Jesus returns. And then some people think a bunch of them were already fulfilled in the past, and some of them are yet to come. So, who's right? Well, let me be honest. I am still learning. Uh, and as I've already said, this book is really hard to interpret, and we have to be humble, okay? But that said, if you have been here over the last couple weeks, you know that at least when it comes to that first set of judgments that's described, the seven seals, I really see that as unfolding throughout the course of human history, right? Because when you look at those four, four horsemen that represent war, famine, disease, I mean, come on, if we look at human history, we see those four horsemen all over the place, right? We see them now, and we can imagine that those four, four horsemen will be doing their work, right, until Jesus returns, until everything's made right with the world. So at least when it comes to the seals, I'm, I, I am the third option there, that, that they're happening throughout history until Jesus returns. But when it comes to the relationship between the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, that's where I feel a lot less confident. Now, on the surface, it seems clear that the trumpets come after the seals. But there's some problems with that view. So I'll just give you one example, okay, just to show that there's some ambiguity here. Uh, when the sixth seal is opened, it says that the sun turned black. You might remember that from two weeks ago. But two chapters later, when the fourth trumpet sounds, it says a third of the sun was struck and turned dark. Now that's kind of weird, right? Now again, we have to remember, Revelation uses very symbolic language. So we shouldn't necessarily assume that either of these passages is telling us that the sun is literally going to go black. That's possible. Um, but this kind of language can also be used to describe political and social turmoil on the earth. So, you know, if somebody was writing about when 9-11 happened and they were using first century language, they might say, the sun turned black and the sky receded like a scroll and the stars fell down from heaven, because it's all metaphorical language that's intended to capture the horror of what happened. But anyway, whether what's happening here is literal or figurative, if we think of the seals and the trumpets as chronological, we have a little bit of a problem here, right? Because the sun is going completely dark before it's going partially dark. So you can see why people debate how to actually view the relationship between these three divine judgments. So I'm not settled yet on the relationship between the seals, trumpets, and bulls. I'm not sure. But here's what I am confident of and what I think we should all be confident of. All three of these judgments are revealing two things 
very clearly, okay? They're revealing that if we put our hope and trust in anything other than God, we will be disappointed. If we put our trust and hope in anything other than God, we will be disappointed. And if we insist on rebelling against God, there are terrible consequences to that. And these two truths are hammered home through these judgments in vivid, horrifying detail. So, let's look at some of that detail. Uh, Continuing in verse 6 of chapter 8. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had turned bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. Okay, so let's stop here for a little bit. Now, there's no way I can address all the questions that we might have about this passage. One, because we don't have enough time, and two, because I don't have all the answers. But there's a few things I do want to say. First, the trumpet judgments have a lot of similarities to the Egyptian plagues in the book of Exodus. That's very important to notice that. They echo the Egyptian plagues. Now, if you don't know the story of the Exodus at all, real quick review, it's one of the most important stories in the whole Bible. It gets alluded to over and over again throughout Scripture. It happens in the second book of the Bible, and its themes repeat throughout the the whole Scriptures. Uh, The descendants of Abraham were in slavery in Egypt. And God told Moses, go and tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. And Pharaoh refused. And because he refused, the series of plagues came upon Egypt until finally Pharaoh relented and he let the Israelites go. And those plagues involved hail, water turning to blood, darkness, just like we see in this passage. And the plagues also involve locusts, which we're going to read about when we read the fifth trumpet. So, what does this mean? What does it suggest to us? Well, when a first century Christian would read this, what they would hear is, what God did in the Exodus is going to happen again. What God did in the Exodus is going to happen again. God is going to judge evil, and he's going to vindicate his people. And just as Pharaoh didn't win, even though Pharaoh seemed all great and powerful, also the Roman emperor in the first century, he's not going to win. As long as he hardens his heart, like Pharaoh, he will not win. 
In the story of the Exodus, we might say that Egypt's injustice boomeranged back on them. Uh, what I mean by that is they did evil, but then that evil came back uh, to harm them. So if you know the story, you know that Pharaoh commands that the Israelite boys be killed when they're born, right? And uh, because he's scared of the Israelites, because they're getting too big. He's worried they're, they're going to lead an uprising. So he orders, he orders them killed. But what ends up happening by the end of the story? The Egyptian firstborn sons end up dying, right? So Egypt's evil boomerangs back on them. <clears throat> and um, so what does that mean for us today? Well, what it meant for the first century Christians in Revelation, when they first read Revelation, is that the evil of the Roman Empire is going to boomerang back on them too. And what it means for us as followers of Jesus is we need to recognize that just as God was faithful to his people in the Exodus, he's going to be faithful to us. Right? Ultimately, evil will not win. And those who harden their hearts like Pharaoh those who enslave and commit injustice and refuse to repent, their evil will eventually boomerang back on them. Hopefully that makes sense. The second thing that I want to comment on here is the repeated use of one-third, right? You hear it over and over again. One-third, one-third. Uh, one-third of the earth is burned up. One-third of the trees is burned up. A third of the creatures in the sea died. Now, why... Is it always a third? Is it literally going to be exactly a third of all these things? Uh, I don't think so. I think what this is, the point this is making is that this is going to be a significant but partial destruction, right? The whole thing isn't going to get destroyed. It's going to be significant, but it's going to be partial. There's going to be some restraint in the turmoil and the chaos here. Why? Because there's still an opportunity for repentance. Now, you might be wondering, well, okay, Ryan, what I really want to know is how literal is all this, right? I want to know, is all this horrible stuff really going to happen in the future? Could it happen tomorrow? You know, this is scary stuff, ecological disasters. Man, this is, this is terrifying. And I want to be very careful about how I answer that. Because first, like I said, Revelation is very, very symbolic. We have to remember that. And clearly there is some hyperbole going on here and some figurative language. For example, it says in verse 7 that all the green grass burned up. All of it, gone, on the whole earth, right? But a few verses from now, the fifth trumpet is going to sound and these locusts are going to come out and the locusts are going to be told, don't harm the grass. Wait, what? <laughs> I thought all the grass burned up. Why is there any grass to harm? So details like that suggest that there is hyperbolic language going on here. This is not the kind of writing that you'd find in a news report or in an, in an academic textbook or anything like that. This is what is known as apocalyptic writing. It's dramatic. It's symbolic. It's kind of dreamlike. Okay. But with that said, this is supposed to scare us. You know, even if Revelation is highly symbolic, it still symbolizes 
a reality, right? And that reality is that those who reject God are doomed. That is the harsh reality. I, I've subtitled this series, Visions for Warning, Hope, and Resistance. And there's a lot of warning in these visions here. A lot of warning that those who do not repent, those who persist in rebelling against God, worshiping idols, their future does not look good. And I think when we read these scary passages, we should use our imaginations to put ourselves in them and to ask, who would I be if this happened? You know, if tomorrow I had no source of drinkable water, all of a sudden, all the water that came out of my faucet was poisoned. Who would I be? What would I do? You know, would I kill to try and get somebody else's water? Would I curse God for allowing this to happen? Would I turn to some kind of false God to try and get water? You know, what, what would I do? Would I completely lose hope? Would I despair? Who would I be? in that situation. It's a scary thing to think about. I don't like thinking about it. But Revelation challenges us to ask that question. And it assures us that if we do find ourselves in that kind of situation, we can trust God. He'll take care of us. Just like he took care of the Israelites in Egypt, when the plagues descended, he was with the Israelites. He protected the Israelites. And he will be with us, too, in any modern-day plague that we might face. Ultimately, we will be okay. That doesn't mean things aren't going to be hard. It doesn't mean that our physical bodies won't suffer. But it means, ultimately, we will be safe. We'll be protected. All right. Let's keep going. Things are going to get weirder. Uh, verse 13. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. <laughs> what about those previous four? Those were pretty bad, right? The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like, like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had his king over the angel of the abyss, 
whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon. Whoa. Okay. With the fifth trumpet comes something else reminiscent of the Egyptian plagues, which is locusts. But, in case you didn't notice, these are definitely not ordinary locusts, right? Uh, they come from a pit called the abyss. They have as king over them an angel named Abaddon, or Apollyon, which means the destroyer. Uh, they don't touch vegetation. I don't know about you, but... I've never known of a locust that didn't touch vegetation, right? And uh, they don't look like locusts. Here is a locust. Looks like a grasshopper, right? Now, when I look at that, I don't see a crown on its head. I don't see a face that looks like a human, or hair that looks like a woman, or teeth like a lion, or a, a breastplate of iron, or scorpion tail, right? Not even close. So clearly, these locusts are something else. Now, what are they? Well, here's a clue. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, um, Jesus encounters a man who is possessed by many demons. And he is, uh, he is really lost himself. This guy is naked all the time, and he lives in a graveyard, and he cuts himself with stones. And when he encounters Jesus, the demons speak through him to Jesus, and they say, they beg him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. So that word, abyss, it gets used twice in the New Testament, once here and once in Revelation. So what is the abyss? The abyss is where demons belong. So if we have in Revelation something called the abyss, and it's being opened, and creatures are coming out of it, creatures who are meant to torment human beings and make them wish they were dead, it sounds to me like this is about demons. It's not about bugs. I mean, this is what the demons did to the man in Luke, Luke 8, right? They, they tormented him. If he was cutting himself and living in a graveyard, this is a man who didn't have much will to live, right? This is, he, was, he was walking dead, right? And in Revelation 9, these locusts are having a similar effect on humanity. And when we think of the locusts as demonic spirits, I think it helps to make sense of their physical description, too. Right? That description is meant to be the stuff of a horror movie. It's meant to be like a nightmare, right? And if it's supposed to be representing demons, that makes sense. And so what this fifth trumpet seems to be saying is that part of the judgment that will come upon humanity, or that is coming upon humanity, depending on your interpretation, part of that judgment is an onslaught of demonic activity, of demonic forces wrecking havoc on people's lives, so much so that they long for death. Now, the good news is that those of us who have a seal on our foreheads, in other words, those of us who belong to God, belong to Jesus, we're spared this demonic plague. It doesn't touch us. But those who don't belong to God, those who haven't had their seal placed, his seal placed upon them, um, they're susceptible to this. 
And whether we see this demonic plague as something that's going to happen in the future or something that's happening in some way right now, either way, knowing Jesus protects us from demonic influence. That's the most important thing, I think, for us to hear in this passage. All right, one more trumpet. I know we're going long today, but it's the last one. Uh, Verse 12, the first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. So the sixth trumpet unleashes this terrifying army of millions of troops, right, riding on these fire-breathing horses. Again, this is powerful, vivid, uh, symbolic imagery. And when the first readers of Revelation would have heard this in the first century, they would hear this, the Roman Empire will eventually fall. The Roman Empire will eventually fall. Notice how it says that these four angels... Um, whoops, I lost it. Anyway, you might remember, it says that these four angels are bound at the great river Euphrates. You remember that line? Bound at the great river Euphrates. Yeah, there it is. Okay. Um, Now, why does it say that? That's because the Euphrates was the barrier between the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire. And if there was anybody that the Romans feared, it was the Parthian Empire. They were strong, and they were not friends of Rome. And if they crossed the Euphrates, the Romans knew were in trouble. So this vision is designed so that people in the first century would read it and think, ooh, Rome's fears of military conquest are going to be fulfilled. Rome's fears of military conquest are going to be fulfilled. Now... That doesn't mean that this doesn't have a modern-day fulfillment for us, too. No country or kingdom is guaranteed to last. That's what this is saying to us. And, you know, until Jesus returns, there are going to be armies and there are going to be wars. And for that reason, our hope cannot be in earthly kingdoms. Like those in the Roman Empire, we have to recognize that whatever our Euphrates barrier is, it can be broken. You know, I don't know what the equivalent would be for the United States, but maybe it could be, you know, nuclear warfare, nuclear bomb being dropped on us. We might think, oh, that could never happen. No, that barrier could be crossed. It could. And our ultimate hope and allegiance has got to be in something that transcends earthly kingdoms. It's got to be. One other thing I want us to notice here. Um, Did you notice how casually 
it jumps from talking about four angels that are being released to kill a third of mankind to talking about these 200 million troops. Almost like they're one and the same. You notice that? Now, most commentators will tell you that these four angels appear to be fallen angels, demonic beings. And so what this is telling us is that demonic beings can work through warfare, right? An army, a human army, doesn't necessarily just represent human interests. There could be darker forces at work behind that violence. And, and the scriptures are, are calling us to, to recognize that connection, okay? And that brings me to one other observation, which is that in both the fifth and sixth seals, we see evil being used to judge evil. Evil is being used to judge evil. Right? Demonic forces are tormenting and killing uh, the people who follow them. We don't hear that God is directly tormenting and killing people. Right? He's simply allowing these demonic beings to have their way with the people who have chosen to serve them. I'll say that again. God is simply allowing these demonic beings to have their way with the people who have chosen to serve them. You know, some people joke that they'd rather be in, in hell than in heaven, you know, because God just seems like a stiff and Satan seems like more fun. But the reality is that when we reject God, we don't open ourselves up to fun. You know, we open ourselves up to torment and death. Evil isn't fun. Evil doesn't want to have a party with you. Evil wants to eat you alive. Evil wants to do to you what these locusts in this army are doing to these people. Final part of the passage. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. This is a sad note to end on, but we need to hear what this is saying. You know, despite all the horror that these people have witnessed and experienced, they don't stop worshiping demons and idols. And one way of putting it is they still love what destroys them. I think that's part of the essence of sin, when we love what destroys us. It's crazy. Why would we love what destroys us? But often we do. You know, I think about people who sometimes will cling to a relationship that's abusive and unhealthy, and all their friends know that they should just get out of it, right? But yet they hold on. There's something about us that so often we hold on to what destroys us, and we love what destroys us. And we need to let these visions wake us up to the absurdity of that. If we want to experience real life, real joy, real peace, we have to find it through the Lamb, the slain Lamb who sits on the throne, Jesus Christ. The forces of evil, all they want to do is torment and kill us, that's their end. That's their goal, right? But Jesus died for us. 
They want to kill us. Jesus wants to die for us. And he did die for us. So the choice should be a no-brainer. But so often we cling to what's terrible for us. We serve evil, and then evil boomerangs back on us. And this morning, I want us to let this, this wild and crazy passage remind us to worship the one who gave his life for us. Anything else that we worship will destroy us, will boomerang back on us in bad ways, but the lamb exalts us. Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge that this is tough stuff. And if you want these passages to wake us up, to scare us, uh, I pray that they would, Lord. I pray that they would remind us that if we serve anything other than you, it leads to nowhere good. Lord, I pray that we would be sealed by you, that we would, uh, that we would submit to you, Lord, that we would recognize you as our God, and that you would seal us and protect us, Lord. Uh, whether these tribulations are happening now or will happen in the future, however it all plays out, Lord, we want to trust you through all tribulations. We want to hold on to the one thing that will last, Lord, to you. In Jesus' name, amen.